The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today, Dr. Gavin Francis, is a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh and a fellow of the Royal College of General Practitioners. He's authored eight books and numerous articles in a variety of publications, including the New York Review of Books and the London Review of Books. His newest book is Recovery, The Lost Art of Convalescence. Steve Kiesling's interview with Dr. Francis is featured in the November-December 2023 issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Dr. Gavin Francis, welcome to the Spirituality and Health podcast. Well, thank you, Robert Ami. It's a great pleasure to be talking with you. Well, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. If nothing else, I, you know, I read the book, and I thought, you know what? I want to talk to him just about one line in the very beginning, even before the book begins. In fact, you have this opening section called Note to the Reader. And there's a line in there that I thought, boy, this, this could take the whole time. In Note to the Reader, you have this sentence. I'm just going to quote it back to you. Illness is as much about culture as it is about disease. And our ideas and expectations of the body profoundly influence the way in which it falls ill. They also include our paths toward recovery. Illness is as much about culture as it is about disease. That just blew me away. So so just unpack that for us a little bit. Sure. So Modern medicine, Western medicine, is really good at a lot of things. It's really good at treating infections with antibiotics. It's really good at treating tumors with chemotherapy. It's really good at fixing broken bones. But there's an awful lot in medicine that it's not particularly good at. And there's a whole world of medical care which is very much about the patient's expectations of illness and their expectations of the doctor. You know, Freud had a lovely line. He said, he said to his students, all of you are continually practicing psychotherapy, even when you have no intention of doing so and are not aware of it. And he was talking about general medical 
people, not just psychodynamic psychotherapists, because he was making the point that every doctor, the way they enter the room, the way they inspire or don't inspire confidence, the way they find out what a patient's priorities are, they are actually influencing the outcome of the illness. There's a whole world of cultural anthropology in medicine in terms of certain kinds of cultures fall ill in particular kinds of ways. We can give lots of examples of sociogenic illness or what gets called mass hysteria as extremely cultural, right through to differences even within European medicine. So, for example, German physicians are very prone to talk about nutrition as a cause of a patient maybe feeling malaise or fatigue, whereas Anglo-Saxon doctors are more likely to talk about possibly the influence of viruses or unknown viruses, passing viral illnesses. And we each find explanations for our patients' ill health through the kind of cultural levers that are available to us. And I think it was really important at the outset of this book to make that clear, that I think modern Western medicine is wonderful for the things it can cure, but at the same time, there's a whole world of medicine, which is about belief and expectation that, that I wanted to acknowledge. And it, it, I found it really fascinating, probably for a number of reasons, but not least among them, the idea that, well, I wanted to believe that, well, it's science. You know, science isn't a belief. Science is science. It's evidence-based. But I mean, I know that, I know that's not really true, but still, I have that bias. And, you know, reading the book, I thought I had to rethink that or I had to challenge that bias and say, well, you know, science too is based on, on belief. And, you know, you write later in the book that my patients often need to be granted permission to take the time to recover. And, and I, I think I would fall into this if I were a patient of yours. I, I would say, okay, you gave me the medicine, you gave me the X, whatever it is, and now I'm done. I, I got to get back to work. I got to get back to whatever it is I want to do. I don't want to give myself time to recover. Come on, body, just you know, snap out of it. And then you go on to say that illness is not simply a matter of biology, but one of psychology and sociology. I mean, it's back to what you wrote in Note to the Reader. We fall ill in ways that are profoundly influenced by our past experience and expectations. And the same can be said of our paths to recovery. So again, there's just so much in, in these brief sentences you write that you have to help us deeper into them. So, Sure. Well, my own view is that medical science is wonderful and that doctors need to have a grounding in science. They need to have a foundation of science in everything that they understand about the way the body works. But if that's all they have, then they're better to stay in the lab and work out scientific truths. If they want to get out into the clinic or into the wild where people have very different kinds of ideas about the body and about ill health, then sometimes they have to hold that scientific training a little bit more lightly. Not give it up because it's an important foundation, but if you only have the science, my own view is that you won't be a particularly good doctor. You need that as a prerequisite, but then you also need something else. And it's back to that very brief Freud quote that I gave, that 
that every doctor is practicing psychotherapy just in the way they walk in the room, in the way they dress, the way they inspire or don't inspire confidence. And I think that a really good way into understanding this truth about illness and wellness is in looking at all the thousands upon thousands of placebo studies there have been over the history of scientific research. Because many, many drugs have been tested against placebos, and the surprising thing that comes up in study after study about placebos is how well they work. And so they are working through the patient's expectation that they will work. And it's not just the drug. It's not, you know, we know, for example, that blue placebos are better as relaxants and sedatives. We know that red placebos are better as painkillers. We know that capsule placebos work better than tablet placebos. But what that's telling us is that the patient's expectation of what will happen when they swallow a pill is really powerful. It's not everything, and I certainly am not advocating that people should be prescribed placebos, but I'm saying it gives us a window into how powerful our expectations are over our health. Another example is, you know, there's various ailments of the body that are described as functional. Now, functional ailments are those where something to do with the function of the body is no longer working properly. And you can't, you can't identify it through a scan, you can't identify it through a blood test. In fact, often it becomes a kind of diagnosis of exclusion when all the scientific objective tests keep drawing a blank. But something has gone awry with the function of the way the body works. And again and again, and particularly neurologists who see a lot of patients with complex functional problems, neurologists have shown that the illness for some of their patients has arisen through, essentially through belief systems. And I use the example in the book of somebody who had a belief system about the way that the spinal cord and the spine worked so that they believed that the slipped disc that they had in their back was causing a paralysis of the leg. And the leg really couldn't move. And it was only when it was very patiently explained when with physical therapy that actually that wasn't possible anatomically for that disc to cause that paralysis. The patient gradually became, began to recover. I don't want to give the impression that the whole of this book is about these kinds of functional illnesses. And I mean, it's not. It's about, it's about recovery from all kinds of things, about recovery from a broken leg or from a broken heart, about recovery from COVID fatigue or breathlessness. But I wanted to stake out there at the outset of the book that I'm very conscious when I meet a patient that their expectations can have a massive influence over the eventual outcome. And so, I, I, yeah, I hope that comes across. I, oh, I think it comes across in the book. And, and maybe it's because I was so taken with the sort of the psychosomatic dimension that, that I set us off on that, on that path. But how is it that you came to this wisdom? I mean, it, it doesn't say, it seems to me, and I'm not a doctor, medical doctor, so you know, it could be my ignorance. But it seems to me that when I go to the doctor, this is not something that they're considering. I don't know if it would be news to them or, or not, but it's just not something that comes into play when I'm talking to my doctor about an illness. Is this something that's 
welcomed by physicians when you talk about this? Or is it something they go, oh yeah, we all know about this. What's the big deal? Or is this, and this is how it appears to me in your book, more revolutionary? Yeah, I think it varies enormously. There's a wonderful series of essays um, that literary critic in New York, a chap called Anatole Broyard wrote, and I quote Broyard, and he, he had prostate cancer in the 90s. And uh, when he was being treated for prostate cancer, he wrote a series of essays about the process of being treated. And one of these essays was called The Patient Examines the Doctor. And it was a really wonderful distillation for me of that truth that we're discussing, that essentially some doctors adopt a very kind of didactic, distant, objective attitude with every patient. Some doctors adopt a very kind of uh, conciliatory, collaborative attitude where they feel as if they're setting out together with their patient. Some doctors adopt a very kind of almost sentimental arm around the shoulder approach. And and my impression after having been involved in medicine for 30 years, I mean, I started medical school 30 years ago, is that the very best physicians are the ones who can switch the way they approach the patient depending on what that patient responds to best. And that's why I included a chapter in this book about the ideal doctor. What is the ideal doctor? Well, the ideal doctor varies depending on the patient. If you're the kind of person that will only respond to a collaborative partnership approach with their doctor and and you come in and you adopt a kind of objective paternalistic attitude with that patient, it's not going to work. Your relationship isn't going to flourish. You're going to really struggle to make that patient feel better and vice versa. But if the doctor is able to get on the right wavelength with the patient and find out what kind of approach that patient will respond to, then you can really start to work together. So one of the complaints in the U.S. about the medical system here is that the doctor doesn't have time to find out. I mean, most of the time, I don't actually see my doctor. I see a nurse practitioner, which is fine. So, so it could be the doctor, it could be the nurse. But most of the time, the people that I see don't have the time to actually sit down and talk to me to figure out what's the best approach for me. Is that universal in Western medicine or, or is it different? I mean, you're in Scotland. Is it different in Scotland? Is it different in, in, yeah. in Western Europe? What's your sense? We have a very stressed medical system too in the UK. The UK has got a national health service, which is a kind of universal health system funded through general taxation. And so there's constant pressure from the government to cut its costs. And that means constant pressure to cut the time each physician has with their patient. But what we do have is a very good continuity or the potential for very good continuity over time. And so I may only have 10 or 15 minutes with my patients, but I can have that really quite frequently or regularly. And so I can get to know my patients over time very well, even though it's for short bursts. And what I was trying to do in the chapter about different kinds of physicians here in this book was to try and encourage or empower the readers of this book to take a shortcut if they want and actually have the confidence or feel empowered enough to tell 
their clinician, whether it's a nurse practitioner or a doctor, to tell them what they like, what they respond to best. Because even the most brusque, old-fashioned, stern physician deep down doesn't want to have ineffective consultations. You know, every physician wants to have effective consultations. They wouldn't stick long in medicine unless it gave them satisfaction to actually do the job well. So I was hoping with that chapter to empower people a little to, to just state and say, well, that doesn't work for me. You know, I need you to get a level with me and be really direct, or I need you to be a bit more gentle. And I think that's perfectly appropriate to ask for that. And I welcome it when my patients tell me. They just kind of go back to what I mentioned a moment ago when I said the really good clinicians, what I've observed, be they doctors or nurses, they, they intuit this. They can figure it out very quickly from nonverbal cues. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that makes total sense. I, I, I don't want to make this purely personal, but I just happen to have noticed this. I mean, I see... Lately, after I had my 72nd birthday, I suddenly was awash in doctor's visits. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. But the warranty on most of my body parts is sort of worn out, and, and I see a lot of doctors. And one of the things I've noticed in the last few months is that the doctor works with, I don't know what you call it, it's not a nurse practitioner, it's, a, it's an, another nurse who's a technician. So like, just to give you one example, I, I'm sitting down with my heart doctor, and in the examination room with us is a nurse who doesn't interact with me at all. She's just listening to what the doctor and I are saying, but she's on a computer, and she's interrupting periodically and showing the doctor stuff from my file, from my slide scans, different things, and it's almost like I'm talking to the two sides of the doctor's brain. You know, one side is the humanistic. He's talking, he's talking to me as a, you know, the softer side. And then there's the woman, in this case, it was a woman on the computer and she's the hard science person. And she's going, wait, you're getting a little too touchy-feely. Look at this scan. (laughs) And it was, oh, it was, it was fascinating. So that, so that the doctor could focus on me as a person while his, associate was focusing on me as a heart, you know, as a body part. And together they really could could engage with me differently than any one person could, I think, on their own. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. And thank you for that, because it's a nice example or personal experience of a positive physician-associate-physician relationship, which, which at the moment in the UK, there's a lot of discussion around about the role of physician assistants and physician associates. And that seems like a lovely way to characterize the potential relationship, that it could actually free the physician up to concentrate more on the patient while the associate is focusing on the paperwork. And I know in the US context, it's often there's a huge amount of paperwork associated with the insurance company as well. So they're maybe helping with that administrative aspect. Yeah, she may have been doing that too, but it was mostly that, I mean, she was looking at all the scans and all the, that, that he, if he, if he were doing that, he couldn't be talking to me at the same time. So she was doing that part while he was doing the humanistic part. And together it made, it took two people to be one holistic physician 
because there's so much involved in being a doctor that maybe it's it's too much for one one person. In any case, I mean that's just something I've noticed in the last 300 doctor visits I've had in the in the last few months. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, here, here's something else that I found in the book that surprised me but only because I'm so ignorant. So you write in the book, this is a quote, I've often wished that we would bring back into common use the term nervous breakdown, a folk diagnosis fatigue, uh, vague, dramatic, and elastic enough that it can be used in all sorts of situations. I didn't know nervous breakdown was no longer a com- in common use. So why do you want to bring it back? What What's the value of, of saying, oh, you're having a nervous breakdown? Well, I just meant in common medical use, because you will never see that at the bottom in the UK anyway. You'll never see that on someone's medical file. You know, 1998 June nervous breakdown. You know, you might have 1998 June myocardial infarction or new diagnosis of ulcerative colitis or whatever. But you wouldn't see that. And what I've noticed among some of my patients is they have an episode which is brought on by great stress in their life. Maybe they've been bereaved, maybe they've suffered a great disappointment, maybe they've suffered a heartbreak, maybe they've suffered something um, which has really set them back. They, you know, they're unable to work, maybe they're having to claim benefits for a while, they're, maybe they're panicky, not able to leave the home, maybe the you know, they've had a disruption to their studies. Something major has happened and which has thrown them off the track they were on in life. And if that gets, if that proves a temporary thing and then they get back on track, then some of my patients come to resent the label that will finds its way into their notes, which might be, you know, an episode of suicidal depression or they might say that it was a, episode of hypomania, you know, like an almost a manic psychosis, or they might have, or they might have PTSD or panic disorder put into their nose. And, and I have known patients who have really resented that psychiatric diagnosis, finding its way into their permanent record because they feel, look, I was just under a lot of pressure in that point in my life. And lots of stresses were coming at me from lots of different directions and I had very little resources to deal with them. And they feel that it's not going to happen again because they're in a better place. And so that was me exploring in the book that sometimes I do wish I could just write 
nervous breakdown, got back on track, <laughs> even though it sounds quite unscientific. Right. But then I like the, the counter example of, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this probably suffer from Z56.3 or Z56.4, which people are going to go, what? What is that? So I'm just quoting from the International Classification of Diseases that you mentioned in the book. These are stressful work schedule, or that's Z56.3 for those who want to take note, and Z56.4, discord with boss and workmates. So I think I think a lot of people, I'll put that in their, their journal. Oh yeah, I have Z56.4, my boss is an ass. And I'm going to put that in there. So, I mean, but that's, Probably, if you put the the Z char- characterization in there, it'll be less stressful. If you if you write that on on X or Twitter, you know you'll get in less trouble than if you say my boss is a jerk. But let, let me let me switch in the time we have to a couple of things that one that I was delighted to read, and one that I was again just stuff I didn't know about that sounded so interesting. So let's take the the first one that was so I, I, this was just so exciting. You talk about. Um, I, I guess we'd call it, I don't know, maybe bibliotherapy. You, you write about um, you know, books as a powerful tool and reading books as a powerful tool in, in recovery and convalescence. So just tell us a little bit about that. And I mean, do you recommend any, con- not titles, but you know, fiction versus nonfiction, poetry? What, 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 what do you have in mind? Well, yeah, I mean... What I was getting at then was that it's been shown again and again that if you can, if you're well enough to travel, travel is a kind of time-honoured way of jolting you out of of too familiar a situation or an unhelpful situation and right back to the, the concept of pilgrimage evolving as it was through the Middle Ages through to the kind of 19th century health spas that people would go to and so on. And I was saying that Sometimes people who can't travel, you can travel through books. And books can be an extraordinarily powerful way of casting your mind into another situation, putting them into putting yourself in someone else's shoes, which can itself give you new perspectives on your illness and on your predicament. So it can help not only by giving practical advice, but also by just the, the leisure of being transported into a different situation. You see what I mean? So I, so I was, you know, thinking about that, and then I was thinking about the delivery system of the book. Um, you know, paper versus tablet or uh, screen, I guess. I don't know if there's any studies on it, and I don't know if you have an opinion on it, but I do. So if you don't have anything to say, I can say something. But when when you're thinking of the act of reading a book in the context of convalescence, in the context of recovery, do you think it's more effective to read a physical book or, does, or, or is reading on a screen just as effective? I think it has to come down to personal preference. You know, I prefer, I'm like you, I prefer yeah. a physical book because I like the physicality of it. I like the spatial reliability of where the text is on the page. I like being able to turn the pages and taking my time rereading a line that I like and so on. Whereas when I read on an e-reader, I it all just feels a little bit too insubstantial. 
and I have this subtle anxiety in the back of my mind that the battery's going to run out. <laughs> so that's my own preference. But I guess, you know, my kids would probably say that I was being ridiculous and old-fashioned and I should just, you know, read books on my phone like they do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or listen to them on, you know, on, on tape, which I also do. I mean, I, I read on an e-reader. I do audible books. I listen to books. And and I do and I and I read a lot, you know, physical books, and each has its own pluses and minuses, I guess. I had the opportunity to do the Audible myself, which was wonderful because don't, I don't normally read my own books, but this one, I don't know, maybe because of the subject matter, and the the, the publisher essentially wanted me to read this one, and I found it a really lovely experience going to the studio and reading this book. Sort of slowly, gently, in, into into the tape, and thinking that it's it's my own voice which is going out there into the ether that people can download. Yeah, I, I've I, I think at at least one of my books, maybe more. I don't I don't really keep track, but one at least one of my books is on Audible, and I didn't have anything to do with it. Someone else read the book into the you know made the audio the audio book. I have a a book where. The book came second, where I was put in a studio and they told me to just talk. And I spoke for days, eight hour stretches of time, and they just edited it into an audio something. And out of that came a, a physical book. So it was the reverse process. There is something immediate about hearing the author's voice. And especially, I think, in a book like yours, which is... I. I I mean, the, the author's voice that comes through in the printed page is very accessible, but hearing your own voice, I think, would make it all the more accessible. So I, I think that was a good choice on the part of your publisher. And, and I'm sure, I haven't heard it, but I'm, I'm sure it's, it's quite powerful that way. Let me, let me ask you one more thing, because I had never heard of this, and maybe I'm the only one, but I doubt it. Talk to us about what you call, or what is called, I guess, convalescent plasma. And why you say it's one of the few near, and it's a quote, near magical treatments in medicine, convalescent plasma. Yeah. So convalescent plasma is plasma as in spun down blood. So plasma in a medical context is blood which has been taken out of a human being and then put in a centrifuge to take out all the cells. And then the liquid that's left over is a kind of straw-colored, yellowish uh, liquid. That is plasma. And convalescent plasma is plasma that's been taken from people who have endured an illness and recovered from it. And it is used in new diseases where we're essentially we've got almost no science or research available about it. We don't really know what the disease is. Um, infectious diseases I'm talking about. And so you can take you can take the plasma and put it into other people, knowing that because the donor has recovered from the viral bacterial illness, they will have antibodies in that plasma against the illness. And in the very early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, convalescent plasma was used as a gold standard treatment because we simply didn't have any other effective treatments. So I think of it as a near magical thing because it's almost like you borrow the health and strength 
of somebody who's been robust enough to recover from the illness. You borrow that health and strength and you kind of infuse it into somebody who's more susceptible or more vulnerable to the disease and the hope of curing that. And in some ways, it's very similar to the way babies in the womb are protected from illnesses by antibodies crossing over the mother from the placenta. So the mother's antibodies, while the baby's in the womb, cross over into the baby. And then when the baby is born, instead of being completely vulnerable, because it would be so pristine new being that's never met a virus or a bacteria in its life, um, it's already equipped because it's been taking all these antibodies over the placenta from the mother. And so I think it's a kind of beautiful idea of taking that almost maternal protection and using it in a, a, a technomedical context. So I want to do something odd with this idea. I want to take the, the reading idea and convalescent plasma idea and put them together and ask you this question. Could it, now obviously I'm speaking metaphorically here, could reading about people who have gone through trauma successfully, who have recovered, who have convalesced through, it doesn't even have to be a, the same trauma that the reader is going through, could reading their experience in a memoir, in maybe a biography written by a third person, uh, could that be a kind of, I'm going to say, psycho-spiritual convalescent plasma that would be a kind of book that they could read to help them with their recovery. Yeah, I think that's a lovely idea. Obviously, you know, metaphorically, it's a beautiful um, conception of what happens when we put ourselves in someone else's shoes by reading someone else's um, account of overcoming illness. Now, one of the themes that I tried to make evident in this book is that sometimes when you're in recovery, comparisons are your worst enemy because if you compare your recovery with someone else's, you can get frustrated. You think, oh, why am I still exhausted by this? Why am I still breathless? So-and-so, my neighbor is all better or my neighbor has been quicker at this than me. And that can become frustrating. But the flip side of that frustration is that when you read accounts of people who have managed to overcome various obstacles or ordeals, that in itself can become an inspiration and a reassurance because you know it's then possible. So yes, I, I can think particularly of situations where people have struggled with mental health problems, where they've struggled with psychotic problems, sometimes when they've struggled with addiction problems. And those memoirs sometimes can be very, very powerful. And I sometimes do end up recommending books, memoirs of people who recovered to my patients as a kind of reading therapy to reassure them that they too can get better. Okay. Well, with that caveat, let's agree that we are both geniuses <laughs> and, and also that we are out of time. This is really a, a wonderful conversation. And the, the book, Recovery, the Lost Art of Convalescence, is a very 
It's a wonderful book. I re absolutely recommend it. Our guest today, Dr. Gavin Francis, is the author of Recovery, The Lost Art of Convalescence. Steve Kiesling's interview with Dr. Francis is featured in the November-December 2023 issue of Spirituality Health magazine. And you can learn more about Dr. Francis's work at GavinFrancis.com. Gavin, thanks so much for joining us on the Spirituality and Health podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Robert Rami. I really enjoyed that conversation. Spirituality and Health podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Brenna Lilly. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your podcast app. And if you're not already a subscriber to Spirituality and Health magazine, please become one at spiritualityhealth.com. From everyone at Spirituality and Health magazine, we thank you for your support. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.